Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Vayakel, which is the book of Exodus, chapter 35. We're in the first third, if you'll recall, of the Torah portion each year. We have a different uh, third, and we're in the first third of every portion because we're in the first year of a triennial cycle. What I'd like to do is start actually with the Shehechianu. This is our first time learning this way. This is our first time uh, remotely uh, studying together. Uh, and so it's a wonderful thing that our learning doesn't stop. Our education doesn't stop. This is the first time we're engaging this way that our Torah learning uh, is going forward no matter what is happening in the world. That's who we are as the Jewish people. We continue to learn Torah uh, and study together no matter what. So let's say a bracha, baruch ata Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Shehecheyanu, Bikiyamanu, Bihigiyanu, Lazman Bless the source of life for giving us life and sustaining us in that life. Uh, that we could reach together this interesting moment in time. I found it interesting in studying this Parsha. Uh, it's about the Mishkan. So we've gotten the instructions to build the Mishkan. Um, and now we're going to get in just a little bit here uh, the actual construction of the Mishkan. And I went, oh, here we go, Mishkan, right? <laughs> here we go. And then I thought, okay, is there anything that could be more appropriate as we go into our first Torah study in this new reality, then to talk about sacred space. And what does it mean to be in sacred space? And what does it mean to create sacred space at home or in other spaces that we don't tend to think of necessarily as the place where we engage with the sacred uh, or with sacred community? Uh, and so um, I, I actually think it's pretty appropriate that we are looking at a text about the Mishkan as we do our first virtual Torah study. So let us say the bracha for Torah study. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kidshanu v'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok v'divrei Torah. We bless the spirit of the universe who calls us to engage with words of Torah. So let's let's look at the Torah text itself. We're in uh, Vayakel which is Exodus 35. We're starting at 35, verse 1. And Moshe convoked the whole Israelite community and said to them, these are the things that God has commanded you to do. On six days, work may be done. But on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to Adonai. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your settlements on the Sabbath day. All right, so this first word that we get, vayakel, um, is the verb that's used to say what Moshe does to all the people. He, so he, in my translation, says convokes them. Right, so this is from the word kahal. Vayakel is from the word kahal like Kehilat Yisrael, right? Kahal is congregation. Kahal is, is community, a sacred community. So this, in Hebrew, there's a verb for that. So Moshe congregates the people. 
right? So just as it, there's a verb, he congregates them, there's a noun, kahal, congregation. All right. So uh, many, many commentaries have been written on this first word of the text of this chapter. Um, and a lot of the rabbis really want to see this not as descriptive, but prescriptive. So when can you build a sacred mishkan? When can you have uh, the uh, the eda, the community, come together? First, you have to you have to vayikayel. You have to congregate, right? That the the rabbis want to see this as the reason the mishkan can be built. The only reason you need a mishkan is because the people came together. That it's not, you know, okay, get them together because I'm going to give them some instructions. Instead, it's because the people came together, now we're going to get instructions to build the Mishkan. So the rabbis really love this word. And they say this is what we should be striving to do always, right, is to figure out how to kahal, how, how to be a kehila, and, um, and all of the things that go with that. Um, and I think right now in this unique moment in time, um, people are going to look back on this recording and go, what, what, what was going on? Um, so in, in the midst of this coronavirus crisis, as we're really just in the beginning stages of it, um, I think we're already seeing the ways that people are experiencing um, kahal as a verb. People are being incredibly wonderful to each other. People are offering to help neighbors. People are offering to take food to people. People are offering, many of you responded to the email that we sent out and offered to call people who are lonely or who are home by themselves. And um, it's been an incredibly moving thing to see how many people want to come together right now and are trying really hard to include people who um, are often left out and who often feel left out or feel uh, not part of the gathering and even studying like this. It took this for us to figure out how to include people who can't be here in this space. And we've had a podcast for a long time um, that allows people to listen remotely and many people do, uh, but it's, it's, it's taken this for us to really think about how do we fully include members of our kahal who can't drive, who can't make it, right? Who can't be there Friday mornings um, and want to, uh, just to have this kind of mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. um, I work from home and I've always wanted to come to Friday Torah study and I couldn't because of work. So I've got my work in the background and God bless. It's the first time I've been able to participate. So some of the good comes from everything. She's been able to participate because she works from home and can't make it to Torah study on Friday morning. So I think this is providing new opportunities for us to do this, this verb of congregating uh, in new and different ways. So, um, so I'm very, I'm very proud of this community. I'm very proud uh, of the expressions of wanting to be inclusive and wanting to reach out and wanting to help uh, that so many of you have done so generously. All right. So we're getting together the whole community, the whole Eda. And what is the first thing now? What what just happened? You don't have your Bibles with you, so you most of you can't cheat. Um, what has just happened is that um, Moshe has come down from Sinai, right, um, with a second set of tablets. What happened with the first set? Exactly. So Moshe smashes the first set because the people have broken the agreement. The agreement is on is in stone, and the people are worshiping the golden calf. And so Moshe 
tears up the contract because they've already broken the contract before he even gets down there. Um, and now he has to go up and get a second set of tablets. And when he comes down, anybody want to guess what day the rabbis say this is? Anybody want to guess? Shabbat. Moshe, huh? Shabbat. Jody? Shabbat. It's not Shabbat. Okay, but good guess. I was going to say Shabbat. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Good bird. Bert gets the gold star. So um, the rabbis, the rabbis say this is Yom Kippur because Moshe has gone to the mountain and has asked forgiveness on behalf of the people. And God grants that forgiveness and gives Moshe um, a second set of tablets, which means the covenant is in place again. The covenant is renewed because the people have been forgiven. And so, um, so for the rabbis, this is, this is the paradigmatic, right? You know, forgiveness day. Uh, and so for them, this is Yom Kippur. So Moshe brings down the tablets. Then he gets everybody together. And, um, again, commentators say it's only because they have this second set of tablets. It's only because they have this second opportunity to be in covenantal relationship that we need the community to come together to build the Mishkan. You don't need that if you're not in relationship with the divine anymore. You don't need a place that's going to be this, the focus for that um, if, if you're not in relationship. So what is the first thing we get after he comes down? The first thing we get is this commandment about Shabbat. Right? So again, we, we see how incredibly important Shabbat is as a practice and how important it is as a defining factor of what it means to be part of the Edah, part of the community of Bnei Israel, of the people of Israel. So, um, of course, God is king in this model. In our covenantal model, God is king. There's no separation between church and state, right? That is a very, very new idea in the world that, we're, that we live in, um, that it's new, um, there was no separation between what it meant to worship the king and to fulfill the will of the king and to keep the divine law. To keep the law of the king is to keep, right? That, that, that's what was, what was legal was what the king said you can do or not do. And in this case, if God is king, the big king, we had other kings, of course, but if God is the king of kings, then um, then if you abrogate the law of the king, it's capital punishment. Certain crimes are so bad that they are punished with capital punishment. Um, this is what we still uh, experience today, right? There are some crimes that we today believe are so egregious that we still punish with capital punishment. All right. So, and so what are, this is very weird for me to teach without, um, <laughs> without asking questions for you to answer. Uh, so, what are the kinds of things that would have capital punishment be the punishment for? Like, what are the criteria that would make something punishable by death? Murder? What, what are some of the criteria? Not the actual crimes, but think about criteria. Like, what, why would you punish by, what are the kinds of things, what are you trying to do by having death be the punishment? Laura? Dissuading people from doing the worst possible things. So you use capital punishment, to, Laura says, to dissuade people from doing the worst possible things. So one of the criteria, 
right, for capital punishment is it has to be something really terrible, really terrible that you're doing. The other reason we use capital punishment is, right, to make it clear that some things are considered so bad that it's a danger to society. It's not just wrong, it's dangerous, right? It sets a dangerous example that other people might follow. Um, And so sometimes um, capital punishment is about you want to make sure there's no spread, right? There's no contagion. Mm -hmm. And Shabbat is, is one of those. Shabbat is one that a, it's such a central idea for the people of Israel that you wanted that breaking it would be one of the worst things you could do. Also, if you don't punish it with the worst possible punishment, you're, you're, you're allowing something to happen that could lead other people to do that. So Shabbat is not, it's not just that it's so bad to break Shabbat. It's that you're publicly violating Shabbat. You are publicly flouting the law of the king. And that's treason and has to be punished um, in a way that makes it clear that, um, that you want to make sure nobody else learns anything from that example other than you're dead now. Right. That's the only thing you're supposed to learn from from that example. This okay. is uh, Amy. Th- this is one of yes. the things that disturbs people a lot that they point to in the Torah saying how unjust it is. But uh, didn't the rabbis make it almost impossible for capital punishment for human beings to do capital punishment? So Bird is asking, uh, he says that this is one of the places in Torah that people turn when you really want to criticize Torah or criticize Torah law, that this is one of the places people go, that you would be put to death for something like breaking Shabbat. Um, And he's asking, didn't the rabbis make it almost impossible uh, to incur the death penalty? And they did. They, so the, in the Talmud, when the rabbis lay out exactly what you need in order to um, execute somebody for a, a crime that is punished with capital punishment, they, they, they argue that it was so arduous to prove that nobody was really put to death. Because they're apologists, right, for this. So they have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about that. This this is the way ancient Israel understood what was dangerous. We have our own criteria for what we put people to death for, right? We've decided treason is one of them, right? Certain kinds of murder, right? So, so we, we understand that, that capital punishment is one way to keep society in order. We still understand that. I'm not saying whether we're for or against the death penalty, but we still live with that understanding that capital punishment is one of the ways you dissuade people from doing the absolute worst things. So Shabbat, Shabbat being critical, um, we're hoping that y- you will take it seriously as well uh, and join us this Shabbat uh, at 7 o'clock tonight. Daniel and I will be here uh, leading services uh, for all of you um, to watch uh, at home, and, um, and we hope that you will join us. Last Shabbat, 96, 97 households uh, were on. So, um, so just know that lots of us are gathering in, in the ways that we can. All right. What else do we get here? So the way that this is stated, this commandment about Shabbat is interesting. It doesn't just say, okay, six days you can 
do stuff and on one day you rest. The rabbis want to read it a little more strongly than that. Verse two, six days will you do your work. Six days y'all work. Do your malacha. Do your stuff. And for the rabbis, they're like, that means we're supposed to live lives of productivity. We're not supposed to sit, you know, and, and contemplate our navels all day. We're supposed to, for six days, to assemble do stuff. And it doesn't have to be paid work, right? But it means that we should be about something in the world, that we're supposed to be contributing, that, you know, we're supposed to figure out how it is that we're supposed to work in the world and what is it that we can offer, you know? And if you think about biblical society, that would have been different things for different generations, right? The older generation might be taking care of the kids while a certain generation is out, you know, harvesting in the field or grinding uh, wheat into flour, right? That, that just because you weren't in the field didn't mean you weren't working. It didn't mean you weren't contributing. Um, and so the rabbis really want to understand this as a positive relationship to malacha, to work. Um, and that, that that's really what we're supposed to be about most of the time, six days. Uh, and then, but on the seventh, kodesh shabbat shabbaton ladonai. You will have this day that is Kadosh, this day, as we talked about at the women's retreat, this day that is set aside, this day that is set apart. Shabbat Shabbaton, a Shabbat of complete Shabbating, to God. Verse 3 says, you shall kindle no fire throughout your settlements on the Sabbath day. So the, the verse, the way it's stated gets turned into rabbinic law that says, it's not that you can't have fire, you can't light a fire on Shabbat. So for those of you who know the blecht, you know, the the metal sheet that you place over the burners, right? This is how my grandmother kept things. This is why we eat chulant, because it can stay on the blecht for 24 hours and not get ruined, Right? So it's the ancient version of the crock pot, essentially. You can have a fire and you can keep it going through Shabbat. You can't kindle a fire on Shabbat. So my grandmother would use the blicht so that she could keep the fire very, very low, right, on two burners. And then you can move food on and off the metal thing to keep, so you can warm it or keep it warm or heat it up or whatever. All right, so the, the rabbis are very creative, right? They they want to they want to make sure that they can provide fire for people um, if they if they can. All right, is that someone chatting with me? No, I've got my hand up. It's Jody. Okay, yes, Jody. Okay, so other than the Shabbos goy who uh, can do those things for you, is is that what you would say when now timers uh, and they've sort of mutilated this whole thing, right? They have timers so that the lights go on at a certain time. But what is the uh, putting the aluminum over everything? I didn't really understand that. I understand how the crock pot, how the colon is sitting for 24 hours, but you said the metal or the aluminum foil over it. So Jody's asking, she's saying like she understands timers to turn the lights on and turn the lights off because that's technically kindling, right? 
lighting something. Um, she's asking me, what am I talking about with the metal? It, it's called a blecht, and it was, it's a piece of metal that goes over two burners on the stove. So the metal stays warm. Okay. And so you can move food on and off that metal. It's, it's like a hot plate. It makes okay. your stove into a big hot plate so that you're not lighting the stove to warm something up, God forbid, but, right. but you can move the pot of chillant onto it or just leave the chillant on it. Okay. It just keeps I get cooking it. slowly at, at a very low heat the whole Shabbos. Yes, Bert. Okay. This, uh, as, this got extended to not uh, turning on electrical lights because they might have a spark and not using telephones. One of the more interesting uh, rulings this week was from the Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel. You know what I'm talking about? Do you want to talk about that, about the phones on Shabbat? Oh, no, I was talking about Shmura Matzah. I, was, oh, I heard oh, one about Shmura, Shmura Matzah. They, they ruled that people, um, Orthodox Jews, can keep, actually must keep their phones on during Shabbat in case they had a coronavirus test and someone had to call them and tell them what the result was, or they had to find out from someone in their house. This is very interesting. It's Pekua Nefesh, I guess, saving yeah. a life, and they ruled that it actually was okay. So Bert is talking about a ruling that's been given recently during the coronavirus uh, crisis uh, that suspends some of the prohibitions uh, related to this on Shabbat. Uh, in the Orthodox community where people still observe this idea of not kindling something, meaning electricity, um, that, that certain things are being permitted now, uh, even on Shabbat, because it's about pikuach uh, nefesh. It's about um, saving a life and preserving one's life and preserving what, and that's through preserving one's health. So for instance, being able to talk on a electric phone um, because you might need to, to be able to get test results. The hospital might be, or the the lab might be calling you. So, um, and I would extend it to say, and to check on other people as well, right? That, you know, to make sure someone else is okay um, also. So there's lots of different uh, rulings. I, like I was just saying, I heard one about Shmura Matzah. There are some people who will only eat Shmura Matzah for um, Pesach, for the Seder, and um, it's been suspended um, for, the rulings are that it's been suspended. You can eat regular matzah. Um, at Seder because people are having such problems um, with the supply chain for shmur matzah. Why anybody would want to eat shmur matzah, I do not know. But okay. <laughs> All right. Let's look at the next verse. Let's look at 35, verse 4. Moshe says to the Eda, to the whole community, this is the thing that God has commanded me saying. That's the end of the verse. Dun, 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 dun. So like, what's the thing? This is Hadavar. This is the thing. Verse five. What is the thing that God has commanded Moshe? Take from y'all truma, right? A gift, la Adonai. Kol nadiv libo. Everyone whose heart is, um, it's a volition that's related to the heart. Yavi eha et trumat Adonai zahab vechesef v'nechoshet. So everyone whose heart moves them, essentially, they should bring it as a truma 
to Adonai, to Yudhei Buffet, what, what, what are they supposed to bring? Zahav, gold, silver, and bronze. And these are to be a truma. These are to be a gift. What else? Verse 6. We know these words, don't we? Because we've just gotten all the instructions to make the clothing for the priests, the walls of the Mishkan. So we know these words. So blue and purple. Right? Um, and fine linen. And now we're going to get all these other kinds of uh, things. I'll read you what my English says. Purple and crimson yarns fine linen and goat's hair, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins, and acacia wood, oil for lighting spices, for the anointing oil and for the aromatic incense, lapis lazuli and other stones for setting, for the ephod and the breastpiece. All right, so these are all of the precious things that are going to be used in building the Mishkan. This year, I don't know why, but maybe because we're talking so much with coronavirus right now about Pesach and about Seder and about how this may be a really disruptive year for people around Pesach. I was listening to a podcast, um, and I made sure I pulled it up so I could give you the name. Um, Yehuda Kurtzer, who's president of Hartman North America, has a podcast now, um, and I was listening to the second episode, and the podcast is called Identity Slash Crisis identity crisis. And I was listening to the second um, episode of that. It was a very interesting conversation um, about Purim and Pesach and about Pesach at this moment, at this coronavirus moment. So so maybe because we I've been hearing uh, some of that and looking at some of that stuff, but I'm so aware this year as we're coming to this text that like I always know that, but like I'm reminded that they're not used to having this stuff. Where did they get purple and crimson anything, right? These are not Wall Street millionaires who would have had some of these most expensive things. How did they get this stuff? Where did they get this stuff? They got it. They borrowed it from the Egyptians on their way out. Their parting gift. It was the Egyptians' parting gift, if you will. Um, Right. (laughs) So they, they borrowed this stuff from the Egyptians. Remember, God makes the Egyptians' hearts um, generous in yeah. giving to the Israelites in lending them this stuff. Um, so they just got this stuff. They just got wealth and they just, it's like they just won the lottery. They're free. They're now free. Their status is as free people and they've gotten all this stuff on the way out of the mall. And now they're told, okay, give, give of that stuff to Adonai who is responsible for giving it to you, of course. But can you imagine, like, think about people who have been without. Think about some people you know who have been without and then they get something, you think they're going to let it go? Lots of times when people have grown up without, they're very stingy, right? About My, my daughter came home one day uh, this past year and said, oh, mom, I met somebody who we have so much in common. I'm like, oh, really? What? You know, well, we're the same age and blah, blah, blah. And his mom grew up poor too. And so she's really, you know, she really is cheap also. (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay. So this is how my daughter perceives me is that because I grew up without, I have a very stingy relationship to how we spend our money, which is not untrue. Um, 
I'm a Maxanista, right? I shop at the dollar store and TJ Maxx. Um, but she, like, she experiences my relationship to not having had. And that relationship is, and, and I, I tend to think of myself as a generous person. It's not that. But like, but I'm not going to waste money for sure. Um, and so I'm just so aware that these are slaves and they've just gotten all this stuff. And now they're being asked to give, to give it back, to give it over to God. And what's so lovely um, is that they wind up giving so much. Of course, remember this text? They wind up giving so much that Moshe says, stop. It's enough. We have enough. So these slaves who, who didn't have anything and now have all this wonderful, rich um, material stuff, you know, they're bringing brooches and earrings and rings and pendants, gold objects of all kinds. People who have in their possession blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine linen, they brought it in so much volume that Moshe had to say, it's enough, right? It's, it's too much. That's how moved their hearts were to give to the communal project. And I think part of what makes them so generous, these, these slaves who could have a hoarding relationship to material wealth, is that it's a communal building project for the divine, for the relationship of the community to the divine. So the same way that I'm cheap about where I'll shop, um, I'm also very generous with friends or anyone else um, who, who's in need. Um, I have no problem, you know, like stretching to help people in my life because there's a different relationship between spending money and giving to a cause. And I think that's what we see here, that we see the people, it's not just a relationship to their material wealth, that's an aspect of it, but they are so generous, Nadeed Lay, they are so, their hearts are so moved because they're building together, right, a communal uh, project. They're building together uh, a, a sacred space that they're going to come, that they know that is going to help them um, nav mitigate, navigate the relationship with God. So I look around, right, and I think that's what's happened here, right? People did the same thing to build this incredible space that I'm sitting in, this incredible place of beauty and um, and and material expense. People gave a lot and gave really generously to build this physical space because physical space is important to us as a community, a place for us to gather and a place in which we can feel the presence of the divine. So um, on uh, that, the address I gave you that I found out what I did with that piece of paper. I gave you um, a copy right there's online, a copy of this article that um, I want to read a little bit from. And um, I'm going to read from uh, the, the writing of uh, Jill Hammer. And I'm trying to remember where I got this from. I want to say Torah Queries, um, I think. So a book of queer Torah commentary. Uh, so she says... That, that the Israelite people are told to build the Mishkan, the shrine that, that they're going to carry through the wilderness. And who is asked to create the stuff, you know, to, um, to make the stuff? Um, we're told that, first of all, you, we have to have people who are nadiv lev, people who are ready to give uh, out, out of their hearts being moved to do that. Um, but the people that are going to be asked to actually uh, Create the stuff. Look at chapter 36. If you have a Bible in front of you, look at chapter 36. 
Vayikra Moshe el Bitzalel ve'el a holy av. So Moshe calls Bitzalel and a holy av. Ve'el kol ish chacham lev. And calls to to every person who is chacham lev. Um, and here my English says endowed with skill, um, which is not even close to the Hebrew. I'm not saying it's not what it means. Chacham lev means wise of heart. So nadiv lev, generous of heart, is what's going to give the material wealth and the material things that you're going to build the mishkan out of, the materials. And chacham lev, being wise of heart, is what's going to be needed to actually create uh, the mishkan, meaning to actually weave together the walls, to actually make the gold and silver into sockets and hooks and rings and all that stuff. That's going to take chacham lev, some people of wise heart and skill, right? Um, so that they are, and so uh, Joel Hammer is saying they're going to carry this this shrine through the wilderness. And they rely on their inner wisdom and individual gifts. That's how she's interpreting Chacham Lev. That what, how do you build a communal space? How do you build a sanctuary, a shrine, and all the things that you're going to need in it? How do you do that? You need people um, who, who are able to rely on their inner wisdom and their individual gifts. And I think like right now, I just can't help but think that is exactly what it's going to take for us to build community right now. It's going to take Nadiv Lev, certainly a sense of generosity. Um, it's going to, because otherwise we can't sustain this whole business, and I know it's a difficult time for everybody, so it's going to take material generosity for sure. But to build a virtual community is going to take people who are Chacham Lev. We're going to have to rely on um, what she calls... Uh, inner wisdom, and individual gifts. She says, although the pattern of the Mishkan comes from the eternal, the gifts that make the sanctuary what it is come from the depths of the human heart. The Mishkan is replete with images of love and relationship, images that we can use to transform our experience of what Torah and community is. So the people immediately respond, says Jill Hammer, to the plea to bring, right, and to give. Everyone whose heart lifted him up, because we get this, uh, this verb about lifting up as well in the Hebrew. And everyone who was moved by a spirit of generosity came bringing their gifts. We just read about that. And she, men and women, the Torah tells us. So she says, notice that the genders so carefully separated by Torah generally come together to create the sacred shrine. There's no difference between man and woman, all desire to be part of building the Mishkan. So the Mishkan is kind of a democratizing agent, if you will, right? So that, that everybody contributes, everybody's giving something, and everybody therefore is represented um, by the physical shrine that they're going to build. And she says the Israelites respond not out of obedience as they did at Sinai, but because their hearts speak to them, right? So we just had Moshe coming down with the tablets. We just had the people um, saying, yes, we will, we will do it, and then we'll hear more about it. This is what they say at Sinai. It's about obedience 
in that sense, says Jill Hammer, um, at Revelation, and the revelation of Torah, the revelation of law, they obey. She says, here, this is different. What's happening here, the actual building of the communal shrine is not about obedience. They obey because their hearts speak to them. Their hearts are moved. And she says, in the biblical conception, lev, heart, refers to the thoughts of the mind as well as the emotions. So it's not just a feeling. It's, it's actually how you think. It's how you make decisions about what you're going to uh, do or not do or participate in or not participate in. In fact, their hearts respond to them with very specific wisdom. The men who work the metal and gold are called chacham lev, wise-hearted, and the women who spin the wool are named nasa liban otana bechokhmah those whose hearts lifted them up in wisdom. An inner sacred truth is coming out of the people through acts of creation. And as the tabernacle grows in beauty, every single Israelite becomes part of the process of putting it together. The, she says, the beauty of the Mishkan comes from the beauty of the generous spirited hearts that design and build it. So too, we can only build sacred community when the wisdom of the individual heart has a recognized place alongside the sacred text. This is a time right now where I feel like we are being called to really lean in hard to the wisdom of the heart right now. Each of us is going to be called into figuring out what that means for us, what that means for us vis-a-vis -vis our families, vis-a-vis -vis checking in with people who may need us, vis-a-vis um, -vis contributing to conversations that are interesting, learning together online, choosing to participate in that so that we maintain a sense of being engaged in a sacred project, a sacred endeavor as a kahal, as a congregation. Rabbi Amy, mm -hmm. I'm just reminded, this is Laura, of um, all the artists who are offering songs from their home studios, you know, Coldplay and Lin-Manuel Miranda and John Legend and dance teachers. Um, it is so inspiring, and authors giving readings. So Laura is talking about um, how many people right now are online offering, how many artists are offering their gifts. Ellie just brought me before I came here. She, she said, Mommy, I have to show you this. And it's, uh, it was on her phone, and it was um, uh, Gal Gadot. Uh, went, you know, she, she did the Imagine, John Lennon's Imagine, and she has different people, famous people, and some people I don't know. They may be famous, but I'm so square. I don't know. Um, and they each you know, take a little piece of the Imagine song and are singing it in this mashup. And... Um, and like Ellie was so moved by that. And it's like, so these, these artists are, they are taking their, their gifts and they're being chacham lev, um, and they are offering that so generously. And I think of the people singing in Italy, you know, on their balconies, you know, the, the incredible, how moving that was to see that people chose to respond to being you know, locked in their homes, essentially, by coming out on the balcony and singing. Um, and singing together and offering that to each other. And then um, I don't know if you've seen people like playing, you know, cellos. And, I mean, there's just so many ways people are um, offering, like Laura said, you know, dance classes or yoga classes online. By the way, we're going to have one next week, yoga with Nicole Sherman, our yoga teacher, yoga stretching for relaxation uh, in a stressful time. Um, so, you know, people are just really figuring out ways to, to offer their, their creativity uh, right now, which is what's going to get us through this. Right. That's what's going to get us through this.
uh, in the Midrash, so, so she quotes a Midrash uh, where uh, when we get the instructions to make the Mishkan, we get the instructions to build the structure first and then the stuff that goes in it. Here, he calls Betzalel and Oholiav and says, make the ark, make the stuff, and then we're going to build a Mishkan. And so in the Talmud, uh, Bitzalel says to Moshe, Moshe, Ra, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, our teacher, normally one first builds the house and then places the furniture inside. Yet you said to make the vessels and the ta- then the tabernacle. These vessels that I will make, where shall I put them? Didn't God tell you tabernacle, ark, and vessels? And Moshe, what does Moshe reply? Moshe could be pretty pissed off right now, right? Right? You, you're questioning me? I was, I was on a mountain. Who do you think I was talking to on the mountain? Uh, that would be God. And you're going to challenge me? But that's not what happens in the Talmud. Moshe replies in amazement. You must have been Bitzel El. So he's talking to Bitzel El who, right, is challenging him, and he answers with amazement, you must have been Bitzel El in the shadow of God and therefore knew the right order of it. That I, Moshe, kind of screwed up. That you must have been, oh my gosh, Bitzel El in the shadow of God uh, to have known that this is the correct order. And so Jill Hammer says, in this Midrash, Moses gives instructions for the building of the Mishkan that are different from what God instructed. And Bitzalel intuits that something is wrong and asks for clarification. Should he not build the structure before the furniture and not the other way around? An astonished Moshe makes a pun on Bitzalel's name. Bitzalel is the one who stands in the shadow of God, Bitzalel. Through Bitzalel's inner wisdom, he has intuited what God wants. And the Midrash implies that God agrees with Bitzalel rather than Moshe. So wh- wh- why is this an important Midrash? Because I think what the rabbis are saying is th- there is a wisdom that is deeper than what authority tells us. That yes, we're generally supposed to follow authority, yes. Usually we, we take Moshe's word for it, that God says this, okay, that's what we do. Six days you work, one day you don't. Okay, got it, understood. Right. There, there was no it wasn't like he had a video that he could bring down right from what happened on Sinai. The people had to trust that Moshe understood what God wants. And they follow it. OK, but sometimes we have an instinct, we have an inner wisdom that challenges authority. Yeah. And that that moves us to go. Hmm, is that right? Is it really the way it ought to be? And the and the good thing is that the rabbis in the in the Talmud would understand that as if it's done respectfully. Like he says, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher. He acknowledges that Moshe has the authority, um, but then challenges right the instructions that come from that authority. And Moshe responds and says, "You're right. You have intuited correctly what the divine uh, wants." And so, um, so it's so. I think what Jill Hammer is saying is that, that it requires us to also listen to, to that inner voice, to listen to the inner voice that's questioning um, how things are, that's questioning how we're told um, it's supposed to be. Although it's true that the heart cannot always be trusted, she says, sometimes our inner knowing tells us that a religious leader does not or cannot have it quite right. Divine wisdom has to work within the context 
of the body. Um, so, you know, really, she sees this midrash as a way of empowering us to, to, uh, to, to, to lean into our own religious wisdom and our own chokhmat uh, lev. And, uh, and, and I think that's a beautiful thing that the rabbis do, they, and they do it frequently. Um, that they, they don't want authority to become so uh, absolute that people stop listening to their own inner uh, wisdom. So we're focusing on all, on all of this business of, of the Mishkan, this business of building a sacred space that's going to be the place that, uh, that is where all of the sacred rituals and rites of the cult take place. And so in thinking about that and in sitting in this space um, today, I, again, in this moment, it's like, okay, so what does it mean now that we can't be together physically? Like what, you know, what we're spending all this time with the Mishkan because the Mishkan was really important. That's where the people were going to come together. That's where they were going to congregate. What do you do when you can't congregate? Like we're focusing um, so much on this physical space, and so many of us are longing to physically be together. Uh, and so um, this podcast that I was listening to, uh, Yehuda Kurtzer says, look, that, that's the whole brilliant move the rabbis made after the destruction of the temple. That was the move of the rabbis after the destruction of the physical space. The, the brilliance of the rabbis was that they said, God is God, you can't imprison God. To say God is only in one place is to imprison the divine. You can't do that. say the rabbis. There is no place devoid of the divine presence. The whole earth is filled with God's presence, with God's glory. We say this over and over and over in the liturgy, but we don't really get what that move is. It's about taking God out of physical space. Davka. And, and affirming that God is everywhere, that God is in the space between people. God is in the relationship that we create. Um, and th th this time of coronavirus, we are going to have to do the same thing. We're going to have to make a radical shift for a little while, like the rabbis did. We're going to have to shift and say, okay, it's not, it's not physical, that's part of it, yes. Hugging each other, kissing each other, yes, that's part of it. But that's not all of it. And being in a physical space isn't the point. It's helpful, for sure. And we're going to do it as soon as we can, for sure, safely, of course. Um, of course we, we want that. But, but what, what Kurtzer was talking about was this, that this was a radical move that the rabbis made, and we're going to have to get radical. He didn't say that. Those are my words that it was a radical move that the rabbis did, this theological shift from God is in a place and you worship God in that place to there can't be a place devoid of God. God is everywhere. And that move is what saves Judaism, right? That move is what allows Judaism to become what it is because otherwise we would have been gone like all the other ancient peoples whose cities were destroyed and their high places were destroyed and their temples were destroyed and they were carried off into exile. That's what happened to us. We should have been gone. The reason we're not gone is because the rabbis make this radical shift to say it's not just in the temple, it's not just Jerusalem, and it isn't just in the land of Israel. God is everywhere 
and our relationship as a kahal to each other and to the divine, our relationship as the Jewish people, our relationship through the covenant, it's, it's just as powerful in Babylonia and in Portland as it is in the, the synagogue space here on Sunset. And this is a move we're going to have to really make and really believe and really create. And um, Kurtzer was talking about how when the rabbis first make that move, they spend a lot of the service mimicking the temple service, right? When do we have services? We have services whenever there would have been sacrifices in the temple three times a day, an extra one on Shabbat. We get Musaf. We get an extra service on Shabbat because there would have been an extra sacrifice made in the temple. We read a lot about the sacrifices. We read a lot about the service in the temple. That's how they make that move. They, they long for it. They talk about it. They lean into it. But over time, the shift really does happen, and they don't have to talk about it so much. How much do we reference the sacrifices in our services now? How many of you have any relationship to our services being related to the temple worship? Hardly any, right? So at first, it kind of mimics the original model because it's such a huge shift that it mimics the original model, but then it starts to turn into its own thing and doesn't need to anymore. Live different experience of community and of relationship to the covenant and relationship to the divine. And I think that's the moment in time we're in right now. This feels weird. We don't know how to do this exactly yet. I don't know how to teach like this. I'm used to interacting with you a whole lot more. Um, okay, so we're going to have to, at first it's going to be an imitation of, of the way we've done it. Then it's going to become its own thing, right? It's going to become truly its own form of learning together. And we're going to have to figure that out in this moment. And, and we don't have a lot of time. It's not like we have centuries like rabbinic Judaism has had. I'm not suggesting it's going to be a permanent shift either. I think some of it will remain permanent because I'm hoping, why would I not put this on Zoom from forever now so that Rita can be with us? Why, why wouldn't I do that? Why would I stop doing that after coronavirus when we're sitting together in the chapel, right? So, um, so it's not going to be permanent. It's not going to be, I mean, some pieces of it will be. And, but it's going to evolve also. Like we're going to start evolving into a little bit of an online community. I'm excited about that. It's frustrating right now because it's all we can do. But I'm really excited about this shift um, that's going to push us to like that moment for the rabbis. It was a moment of catastrophe. It was a moment of disaster that, that, that made this shift necessary, but it had already started, right? Babylonia was already a thriving community when the temple was standing. So it was already happening, but then it became the dominant modality. Once the temple's destroyed, it became a necessity out of catastrophe. But look at this gorgeous rabbinic Judaism that we have. We have Judaism because of that moment, because of that move. And, um, and so I'm excited to see what it is that we develop together. I'm excited to see new ways that we move online. Uh, as a community and relate to each other regularly online. Like next week, we're doing lunch with the rabbi. Any of you want to have lunch with me can have lunch with me. Um, cocktails with Daniel Cher, coffee with Micah. Um, so that's what's yes, happening yes, um, next yes. week. We're going <laughs> to virtually hang out. And I think to myself, why did it take this? Why? There are people who live alone. Why don't we have lunch once a week with 
whoever wants to come to lunch and we have conversation and we schmooze. And so even if you don't live alone, but you just want to kind of check in <coughs> every now and then with, with um, other KI people, why not do that? Um, and so like, wh- why not at the end of a week, we have, you know, maybe, you know, uh, a little schmooze together before Shabbat and we end the week together. Um, so, so I think there's some exciting things that are going to come out of this crisis, this catastrophe that we're facing and that we're dealing with. And it's going to be up to us to really access um, the Chochmat Lev. And I think it's a radical move that just like that move the rabbis made is going to make Judaism and KI flourish and thrive in a new world. It's a new day. It's a new world. It's a new world order. And so I think it's, it's time. It's time for us to figure out ways to be together. Um, again, of course, we're going to come back to physically being together. My hand is raised. Okay. Hi, Jody. What would you like Hi. to say? Hi. So I'd like to say a couple things. You know, I love this idea of lunch, cocktails together. We have now, excuse me, we're having dinner with other couples in the new way where we're eating. Last night we were having cocktails with the Dreyfuses and had our FaceTimes going on our, on our dining room tables. And tonight we're having dinner with another couple. And this is a new way. Um, and I do want to say also something else. In the beginning of this week's uh, Torah portion, when it talked about but we just got these gifts. Oh my gosh, we were poor. We just got the gold. And then to give them to Adonai, you know, this is just going to be my plea and my pitch for you. KI is really struggling with everything that has been canceled. And while we might have to dig a little deeper, this is very important to us. So while we appreciate everything you do, I just didn't, I don't think believe in coincidences. It was just what we had to read today. So I just wanted to say so that. Jody's talking about um, virtually having cocktails and dinner with couples um, online, uh, that that's a, a new way that we're uh, visiting with one another and socializing with one another, um, and that it's no accident that this is the Torah portion um, for today is what I heard her say, that um, this, this idea of giving uh, gifts and, and making this um, shift that it's the, that it, we're reading it at this moment is not um, – is not by accident. Um, Jim? Jim? Thank you, Amy. You did, you, you were wonderful. Um, you know, maybe this is an opportunity for all of us to cultivate our spiritual muscles, if you will, being that we, you know, this is presenting a lot of, uh, trial and tribulation and really to connect in with Hashem, you know, it's like, uh, I don't have the answer, but I need your strength to carry us. And that's the thing, the beauty of, and I've been on some Zoom AA meetings uh, over the last few days, and people are so grateful for this platform. We may not have the temple to bring us in community together, but this is what we have. And this sustains us, you know, for today. Uh, I live, I do my best to live life in 24-hour increments. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful that that K.I., you know, was able to do this. Um, And so uh, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. (laughs) Shabbat Shalom, Jim. Jim is expressing gratitude for this platform and for 
for my my teaching and um, and that we can do this 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 way together. It, it is a remarkable moment um, at, in time. It's a remarkable opportunity, uh, I think. Um, and we're going to see what this order this uh, the order from the state uh, is and whether or not I'm going to be able to teach from this space again. I might not be able to. Um, and so if I'm not able to teach in this space again, I will be doing it from home, but we will be having Torah study every Friday morning. There is Torah study Saturday morning. Um, and so um, please, I know you're inundated with emails. We all are. It's ridiculous. Like, you know, Lexus is telling me what it's doing during coronavirus, like whatever. Okay. So, um, so, but, but look at your email because we're going to send out all of the things that we're doing and a link to all of them. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.